Hey everyone, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes released on time for the scheduled reading of the week. Unfortunately, this hasn't always been possible. We made the decision to release this episode with minimal editing rather than release it late. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of friends, family, and church. We're looking for additional volunteers to help with editing the podcast in time to get them released. The time commitment may vary from four to six hours per week. If you would like to help, send us a message on our Facebook page at Latter-day Peace Studies or email us at latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. We are also openly asking for donations to help cover the costs of producing the podcast. You can donate through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, and clicking on Get Involved, then scrolling down to the donate box. Thank you to all who have helped out over the years and donated to the project. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everyone. This week we are covering the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so we've we spent one podcast on Leviticus, one on Numbers, and now we're doing one on Deuteronomy, the entire book of Deuteronomy. Um, this was a lot of material to get through, as we've said, you know, Numbers was a lot to get through as well. But uh, I think one of the difficult parts this time about Deuteronomy wasn't so much the 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 depth of the concepts, and there there is some there, uh, but it was just the um, the repetition of everything, right? Because uh, basically the book of Deuteronomy is a rehashing of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in many ways. And so when you're going through it, you can feel like it's like, well, this is nothing new. There's nothing here. But after you digest that a little bit and start going below the surface, especially with a lot of the textual and literary analysis that goes into Deuteronomy, there is a lot to understand contextually about Deuteronomy that that makes the text give you a lot more aha kind of moments, right? Would, would you say that was kind of your experience too, Chris? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's much more here than than meets the eye on the, you know, on the face of it. Yeah. Well, Deuteronomy says a lot without saying it, right? So like um we'll talk about some of the contextual things going on. Yeah, it's on context, here right? Yeah. Yeah. I I always say, Ben, I always say context gives meaning. Everything that's said is said in a context. And so one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in in reading or in thinking is to drop the context and think everything else remains the same. Yeah. We have to understand this text in its context. Yeah. So we have this this book is named Deuteronomy in in English, which um, we're completely detached from the meaning of that word, but basically is talking about two laws, right? But um, as with the other 
uh, as or, with or numbers, a second law giving. Yeah, second law giving. Yeah, as with numbers, it's just it's just not a fair name for the book. We think, <laughs> and and we really like the Hebrew reference of the to this book name for this book better, um, and that's devarim, or words is what that means. And now that seems like a very simple, um, flat, meaningless name, right? But it actually yeah, isn't is it all words? Very profound. The whole Torah, yeah. <laughs> to name it words is ends up being profound because of the context. So ostensibly, this is Moses giving a speech. This is Moses's speech. He's recounting Jewish history, um, and commenting on it, right? Um, now, from a textual literary analysis, um, scholars basically it, it, it's pretty obvious. It's not Moses that that wrote this book. Um, there's a lot of sources that go into this, um, even if they do take something that that can be attributed in their time to Moses. It's definitely not Moses that you know wrote the first and last words of this book. And there's a lot, a lot of you know clues there. They're the fingerprints of the editors, we should we could say, are all over this book. The fingerprints of the redactors, um, and and they actually because of that. They have their. There's an entire section of the um, the documentary hypothesis that gets named after them, the Deuteronomists, right? And so, <clears throat> so much context going into what they're doing and why they're doing that, and how the Book of Deuteronomy, as we have it now, came about. Basically, um, I want to go back to though the discussion of the title of the book, words. Um, this is there's a there's a lot of ways to approach this, but uh, one of the things that stood out to me most is that this is a commentary or a reference to Moses's relationship with speech, um, or with words, but with speech specifically. Um, so if we think back to Exodus, we're always thinking back to Exodus, right? <laughs> That's the beginning. Yeah, if, well, that's the yeah. that's the central point of the whole thing, right? If we think back to Exodus, that's that's the thing, Ben, that, that Deuteronomy is telling us over and over yeah. and over again is to remember yep. Exodus, right? Yeah. Moses is on Sinai and he sees the burning bush and he has a conversation with God, and God tells him to go tell something to the people, and Moses says that he can't. His his speech is too slow, right? He He's not a good speaker, essentially, is what he's talking about. He says he's not good with words. Not good with words. Devarim, right? the exact same word, right? And so this has been Moses's hesitation and concern with himself, his his self-diagnosed weakness, right, the entire time. And so starting with the burning bush, and then we have uh, another seminal moment that we got to last time was the moment where he strikes the rock with the staff where God had told him to speak to the rod or to the rock. I mean, not to the rod. And that was significant because we, we talked about how God was trying to potentially lead him into uh, a different way of doing things, not the striking violence, authoritative force with the, the staff, but the persuasive, speech of words, the power of words as opposed to physical force. 
And that's always been difficult for Moses, right? And in fact, this moment that he does that is the apparent reason that God gives that Moses cannot enter the promised land with the Israelites. And the fact that Moses can't enter the promised land with the Israelites is a very central, if not the central theme of his speech in Deuteronomy to the Israelites. He's constantly saying, you're going to cross over. I am not going to cross over. I'm not going to cross over Jordan and enter the land with you. I'm not going to do that. And he's constantly saying that over and over and over again. So we'll have more to say about that. There's something else, Ben, in Exodus. We get that Moses says he is uncircumcised of lips. Yes. And that's interesting because uh, last time we mentioned Aviva Zornberg pointing out that it is through it is through the genitals and through the mouth that we connect with other people, hopefully fruitfully, she said, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that he says he's uncircumcised of lips. These are the erotic organs, our mouth and our genitals, right? Yeah. How... And so, yeah. And that the very nature of language is erotic. I remember saying that. Yeah. It's what makes language language. Yeah. The imagery there of being uncircumcised of lips, right? Not not able to, to you know, something's covering that. You know, he's not able to, to express. To as, connect. As well as he, yeah. as he could. Yeah. So... You know, the, the idea here behind this book being called Words, Devarim, is also harkens back to creation, right? Where God spoke things into being, right? Words are the, the method of creation. And up until now, uh, especially Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it's been God doing most of the speaking, Yes, he's been doing it through Moses, but it's God's words. God said unto Moses, and God's always saying, the Lord says, do this, right? Now in Deuteronomy, it's Moses speaking his mind, right? So it's almost as if Moses has kind of finally uh, overcome this weakness, has kind of finally arrived at a place where he has, has been able to speak. And then the irony of that is that you look back and realize he's been able to do it all along. He just didn't realize it. And and God has brought him into that realization, that awareness of his ability to do it that he didn't know before. And so Deuteronomy is sort of the fulfillment of that, of Moses finally coming into his potential of speaking into being this. And yet he only gets to look at the at the promised land. He doesn't get to go in. Right. To go into it, right? Yeah. Now, he doesn't get to connect with that land, right? He, he gets to, he gets to, he can see it, but he can't touch it. Yeah. And right? he can't go into it. You know, this kind of brings a melancholy tone to the entire book of Moses uh, speaking. It's, again, he's constantly referencing the fact that he's not going to cross over. Um, and I, I would say there's, there's themes in this book of nostalgia, right? He's always looking at these, these past times there's regret. Um, but there's also conviction and determination, um, to push forward, even though he's not the one that's going to cross over, he's telling them they're going to, right. And, and there's a thing for them to do. And so he, Moses in, in Deuteronomy is 
giving an interpretation based on his intuition of all the events up until now and what they mean to the people. But he is trying not to tell them too much. He, Zornberg really gets into this. Her her commentary on uh, that I watched on this really focused on this point. And it's that Moses is is trying to hint at something um, to get them to the Israelites to think in a way about their situation and Moses himself without coming out and saying it. Because if he just comes out and says it, then it defeats the whole purpose. And what is the purpose? The purpose is for them to intuitively understand what God intends for them and what it is that this law that Moses has given them means. And they re- they have to work for that. They have to be able to, to make that jump into that intuition and understanding to do it. In fact, what this, this comes out a little bit when Moses talks about the kind of people that they are to choose as their leaders. Um, and uh, I think we'll, I'll get to that, uh, commenting on that later in there. You know, Ben, this reminds me of uh, a lecture I asked Travis Patton, who's been a guest co-host on this podcast and a guest on our sister podcast on Latter-day Contemplation. I asked him to give a lecture, you know, to answer the question, are we Rome mm. about the United States? And Travis never actually answered the question. What he did is he he gave a lecture telling what Rome was like and let the listener to be come to the realization mm-hmm. herself right that we are rome mm. yeah or 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 to to consider the question whether or not we are in her own mind yeah by just saying this is what rome looked like yeah uh you know before the fall and then you you know what what america looks like you can fill in the blank yourself yeah. right you can connect the dots and so I think that's Moses is trying to do something like that he's not coming out and telling you what the deal is, right? You're supposed to come to the realization on your own. So it's interesting that it's called words, right? Yeah, there's a sense in which so there's a point in here that Moses is talking to God about the fact that he's not going to enter the land. Almost kind of like uh, trying to change God's mind because Actually, Moses has been successful on multiple occasions at changing God's mind. <laughs> and so, uh, there. but then the Lord says, don't talk to me, something like, don't don't speak to me anymore about this. And there's, there's Midrash on this that says that the to me is important because he doesn't tell Moses not to talk about it anymore. He says, don't talk to me about it anymore, as if to imply to Moses, go talk to the people about this. And so um, what happens is when Moses goes and talks to them, sort of the, the Midrash on this says something like Moses's idea is to go and um, implore to the people um, and ask them almost to intercede for him, right? Maybe they can pray to God. Uh, on my behalf. Now, the the idea isn't so much that Moses at this point thinks he's going to actually enter the land, but he wants the people to want him to enter the land, right? And it's 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 like 
he doesn't he doesn't need it to come true, but he needs the people to want it to come true. Because he needs to know that the people care about him. That they they really um appreciate appreciates, you know, not a strong enough word, I think, here, but they really value or appreciate his his role that he's played and all he's done for them and that 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 they truly love him. Right. And so he's he's trying to to tell them something without telling it to them because if he tells it to them and and, and they do it then they didn't think of it themselves so there's a sense in which they they didn't really love him because they didn't come up with it themselves and and this kind of reminds me of conversations i've had with my wife before where it's like you know what, tell me what you want and and the sense is well if i tell you what i want then you didn't think of it on your own and so it's it's not as meaningful. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. By that. <laughs> I, and it goes both ways. I'm not saying it's just uh, you know. I, I think in in a sense, uh, people feel that way, right? About another person, it's it's always more meaningful if if they think of your needs before you even do, right? And so, yeah. uh, again, it's a little bit of what's going on here with Moses. You know who was good at that? Uh, Steve Jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, thinking of what you need before. You... <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe that's what computer AI is for. Right? <laughs> so the I want to talk a bit about the the literary what's going on uh, literarily, textually here with the actual creation of uh, the Book of Deuteronomy historically. Okay, so. Scholars trace the the compilation of this um, could be somewhere in the seventh century BC. So this would be you know between seven hundred BC and six hundred BC, somewhere in there. Um, could be afterwards, also in in exile. But um, the the concepts that are that are brought out in here, and the way it's compiled, and the things that are that are pieced together, and the way they're pieced together lend themselves to what was going on culturally, theologically um, at the time uh, in ancient Israel during that 7th century BC. And you have Hezekiah and Josiah, these kings, and not to get too much into it, but there was a there were a lot of geopolitical reasons for this, but there was heavy theological shift away from some previous um, religious practices. And some of the things that that happened because of that was uh, a more strict shift towards uh, a not just monolatrous, but monotheistic uh, assertions. Yeah, to to the exclusion of the divine feminine, which we'll go into more, to the exclusion of of, uh, a father and a son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Deuteronomy essentially solidifies some of the ambiguities of of the previous religious traditions, um, in a sense that it, to to exclude and and try to bring together um, again into a more monotheistic uh, tradition, and a lot of the previous ways of doing things uh, get get pushed away. For instance. You were bringing up Christopher, the the divine feminine, 
So the the goddess Asherah is a very prominent up until this point. We find it archaeologically. We even find it textually, and it becomes hidden um, and sort of uh, disguised, I should say, as something else, and we'll get to that. Um, the other thing that happens is a centralization of the sacrifice uh, religious rites. Um, so in in the wilderness, you ostensibly had this tabernacle where all the sacrifices were done. But um, what happened was it became very common in a practice for sacrifices to not only be done there, but to actually be done wherever people wanted. They built an altar and they offered sacrifice, right? I mean, Abraham built an altar, altars all over the place. Um, and then his Isaac and, and Jacob did the same thing. So building altars wherever you want to build an altar and worship God was was acceptable before. But then you got to this point in Israelite history, and it was no only at the temple are you supposed to do this. And so whereas before every every slaughter of an animal was done ritualistically and was a religious practice, now it got changed to no only specific sacrifices are religious practices, and all of the other slaughters of animals are just regular regular butchers slaughtering of animals. They're not a religious thing. Okay. And this is really different from our conversation last week in numbers. I mean, really different. Yeah. There's a, this is a huge shift, right? Yes. Away from, from, from another way of doing things. And, and by the way, notice the, that the centralization and the, and the, that that impulse towards centralization in the temple, right? And the, the impulse toward monotheism Notice how they track. Mm -hmm. They seem to go together. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So not, you know, whereas up until this point, all of the killing of animals was a holy practice and had to be done in a certain way. Now it's only the ones at the temple that are done in this specific way. Okay. And so there was another thing as well. I believe Hezekiah, he, he destroys or gets rid of the staff with the serpent on it, right? Because that was a, an icon. Right, the, the brazen serpent and, yeah. Asherah, who, and Asherah, who's, yeah. again, part of, the, part of the, the Israelite religion and part of temple worship. Right. So all of this is, as, fast, as I was reading over this context and, and commentary on the text, it was really fleshing it out for me. Oh, this is why this is constructed in this way. This is why these things are talked about in this way why they're interpreted this way in Moses's discourse. And let me bring up a word here that, that hasn't come up yet, Ben. It's uh, reform, right? These are yes. religious reforms. There you go. Yeah. Religious We've reforms. been talking about it, but we haven't said it, right? Sure. Yeah. They're religious reforms. Yeah, absolutely. Religious reforms. And there were, there were geopolitical reasons for it because of what was happening with, with uh, Assyria and, and then later Babylon and stuff like that. So a lot of these were responses to what was going on politically around them. Um, and even the structure of Deuteronomy, um, it's it's got a, an, a contractual nature to it. And it was very much patterned after other um, treaties that were going on at the time uh, among the different nations and, and peoples. So 
Suzerain vassal treaties, right? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the names for them. There's yeah. a there's another one too, but I, I forget how to pronounce it, so <laughs> I'm not going to butcher it. Yeah, and you know, and it's it's typical actually that that these kind of theological reforms happen for political reasons. We see the yeah. same thing happen later on in the Reformation. Well, it happened in our tradition as well, right? We had political right. changes around the uh, turn of the 19th century. Um, you know, the Utah wanted to be a state, couldn't be a state um, with polygamy. And so there had to be religious reform that happened in order to respond to these uh, political realities. Now, you know, you can That's right. you can uh, take that however you want, but even in the official declarations, it, it states it as a response to these political things. So this happens. Same goes for over. blacks in the priesthood. Correct. Yeah. So a lot of these uh, reforms are responses to these uh, political realities that are going on. So as I was thinking about all of this and the time frame, right? Like I, I'm just such a Book of Mormon guy, right? I, 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 I was realizing, okay, this is this is leading up to 600 BC. This is when Lehi lives in Jerusalem. And sorry, I should, I should step back a second. Ostensibly, the the actual historical time frame we're talking about in Deuteronomy is not 600 BC. We're talking about the the compilation of the the text that we have, not the time period that it is purportedly covering or referencing, right? Right. So it's not Moses's time. You're not saying Moses's time is 700 BC. You're saying the the composition of the uh, of the Deuter- Deuteronomy right. text, right, is from is Deuteronomy that. is set in Moses's time, but it's written around the seventh century BC, and so we're talking about right. the context of when it, it's it's edited, compiled, redacted, all of those things, right? And this context is the by these world. religious reformers. Yeah, the context is the world leading up to Lehi's family. And the beginning of the Book of Mormon, where they leave Jerusalem. And if you go, uh, I mean, you really don't have to read very far in First Nephi to start seeing how this really fits in with this world that we see contextualized um, by this discussion of how the Book of Deuteronomy came about. So we talked about how all the religious reforms were getting rid of the pantheon of gods where you had um, El as the chief god and then he had the lesser gods as part of the council. And the idea was that- Including his son. Including his son, right? And so um, historically, religiously, his son is Yahweh, right? And Right. And then in the, And his consort. Yeah, and his consort. The Asher. goddess. Mm-hmm. So the what happens historically religiously is that the Israelite tradition starts combining and 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 confounding El and Yahweh into one, into a single deity. And then gets rid of Asherah altogether. Um in into this scenario. Uh, enters Lehi and his family. And the first thing that happens with Lehi is that he has a dream and he has a dream of one, it says in in 1 Nephi chapter 1, of one descending out of heaven and 12 following after him. And we've always taken this as uh, 
a we've interpreted this Christologically uh, to mean uh, Jesus and the twelve apostles, and I, I don't know that there's ever been given any other interpretation of that. I mean, it, it makes the most sense to us um, in our religious tradition and theologically. What I would posit is that at least to Lehi, and and I'm not even saying that this is what God meant, but at least to Lehi, it might have meant something different. He may have originally understood this something as in a different way, because remember Lehi. Um, if he's living at this time, he has grown up with these other theological traditions, the Pantheon of Gods, Asherah, all of this other stuff. And so to him, this might mean something different. He might be seeing that old religious tradition that he might still be holding on to. And he's passing that on to his family. And in fact, he is going out and preaching to the people. Now, it says he's talking about a Messiah that would come, but that doesn't, and, and saying it's the Son of God, right? But that actually fits in with that concept of Yahweh being the Son of El, right? And so he, he then teaches this to his family, and I'm going to skip a part that I'll come back to of when they leave Jerusalem, but then later he has a vision and it, when he's in the wilderness, and he has a vision of the tree of life. And he talks about it a bit. And then Nephi wants to understand it. And so Nephi goes and has the same or very similar vision. But then we get a, a more of an explanation from Nephi. And in the vision of the tree of life, he sees the mother of God. And there's been a lot of discussion around the relation between the tree of life and the mother of God and the tree of life as a representation of the divine feminine in not, you know, trees in general as being a divine feminine symbol, but specifically within the Latter-day Saint tradition, this is actually a very discussed thing among scholars. And in fact, um, there's a particular article. Is it by Dan Peterson, Christopher? Yes, that's Nephi right. Nephi and his Asherah. And where uh, Dan Peterson discusses this concept within the theological context of the 7th century BC of Deuteronomy. Um, and so Christopher, I, I want you to take it from here and, and tell us what's so interesting about that. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting because here, you know, Nephi has this vision of the tree of life and he wants to understand it. And he asks for an explanation and an angel shows him what the virgin and her son and asks, you know, now do you understand you know, what do you see, right? First, what do you see? And he said, well, I see a virgin and and, a, and, and her son. And then ask, well, do you now understand the meaning of the tree of life? And he says, yes. And my wife says, wait a minute. What does what the one thing got to do with the other? How, how, does, how does seeing a vision of, a, of a, a virgin and child explain the tree of life? And the answer, as uh, Dan Peterson argues, Dr. Peterson argues is it's part of uh, it's part of Nephi's context to understand and know Asherah. So, in so we've come to understand through archaeology that the difference between Canaanite and Israelite religion is not as great as we once thought it was when we only had the Bible to go on. Archaeological evidence has helped us understand better 
the similarities. And there are differences, right? And, and I'll, I'll highlight uh, some significant differences here in this discussion of, of the Divine Feminine as, as represented by Asherah. So you have El, the original Israelite God, and he has his consort, Asherah, also known as Elat, the goddess, whereas El is God, Elat is goddess, her name Asherah. They have a son, Yahweh. As you pointed out, Ben, later on, Yahweh and El become conflated into one, and then later still, Asherah becomes part of one and the same Yahweh, right? It's all Yahweh, as and that's what we've been seeing. So in Deuteronomy, it should, the reason this, this comes up in Deuteronomy is because these reformers, you can see it in chapters 7, 12, and 16. They're telling us to, depending on your translation, it might say burn the poles. So Asher is part of, she's part and parcel of temple worship. She's there in Solomon's temple. The virgin, in a sense, not only is related to the tree, but is the tree, right? So the goddess is the tree. The tree is a symbol of the goddess, and the, the tree stands in as, as that symbol in the temple, in the temple of Solomon. Hezekiah, when, he, when, when the brazen serpent gets removed, so does Asherah, but she comes back, and the brazen serpent doesn't. When you Later on, when you have um, the new, um, young, upcoming god, Bel, right, who we dealt with last time, last week, um, when he's, you know, when, the, when Elisha and Elias are taking on, it's Elisha and Elias, right? It's just Elijah in this case. Elijah and Elisha. So when Elijah and Elisha are taking on the priests of Baal, yeah. the question then is, what happens with the, the priests of Asherah? And the answer is nothing. We don't hear anything against Asherah from the uh, Yahweh's prophets. We don't hear anything at Science. all against Asherah. Baal? <laughs> yeah, Baal, out of there, right? Asherah, no such problem with Asherah. So she's very much a part of, of Israelite religion. And so we can see this This is a similarity with Canaanite religion too. And we have figurines, you know, archaeological uh, dis- discoveries of figurines of the, of the, of the divine feminine uh, of Asherah represented in, in these figurines of usually, so of course, feminine, they are um, exaggerated breasts, right? Sometimes pregnant, sometimes nursing. And in the Canaanite version, from the waist down, also sexualized and eroticized, right? In the Israelite version, from the waist down, a trunk, the tree, right? So these are the poles that the Deuteronomists want us to burn. They want to sweep Asherah under the rug, put her out of the temple, not to be thought of or seen or spoken of anymore, and so that's what's happening with, uh, with the divine feminine in this context of religious reform. And so interestingly, when Nephi goes and he has this vision and he wants to understand the tree of life, he sees this, this female, right? This, this mother of God after the manner of the flesh, who he understands as related to the tree. In fact, the language is very similar in how they're described as white and delightsome and beautiful and whatnot, the tree and the virgin are both described in similar terms in that way. Yeah, so all that to say, we, we can't go into all the details you know, for 
time reasons. <laughs> but uh, there's that article named Nephi and his Asherah by Dan Peterson. Um, it's on uh, scholarsarchive.byu.edu. So uh, go look it up, read it. Interesting placement within this context. Yeah, go look it up because there, there's another side to this, and that is in the wisdom literature in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Job, Proverbs, right? You, This is another, that wisdom is personified in in feminine form. Yes. This is also having to do with, with the goddess, right? Yes. With the divine feminine. And so that's a whole other aspect to this article that is maybe less on point in this discussion, but part of the article. Yeah. Going back to Lehi along this line, though, is that it makes it starts to make a little more sense or give more uh, reason and context to what is going on with Lehi and why he's leaving Jerusalem. Right. So all of this uh, religious reform is going on and Lehi is, is preaching to the people and he's being threatened. Right, because he's not fitting in. You know, in, in ancient an ancient mindset, religion and politics really were not different things. They were the same thing, and that's why these political changes affected religion so much. And so, if you have different religious opinions from other people, then that means you have different political opinions, and those threaten the tribe, those threaten identity. Um, so, those are going to elicit violence in a lot of scenarios, and that's what happens with Lehi. So he leaves Jerusalem. And what does he do when he leaves Jerusalem? It says he travels three days into the wilderness. Where have we heard that before, Chris? That's what Moses says he wants to do uh, to to right. worship uh, the God of Israel for, to yeah. Pharaoh. So right? they travel, says, yeah, to Pharaoh, they're going to travel three days out into the wilderness. Guess what Lehi does when he travels three days out into the wilderness? He builds an altar and offers sacrifices. Well, wait a second. He's not supposed to be building altars in the middle of nowhere and offering sacrifices. They're only supposed to do that at the time. Not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. According to the reformers. Unless Lehi is seen as a heretic in this case, which would make sense, right? And unless he sees all animal sacrifice as essentially a religious act. Correct, yeah. Right, as it were, yeah. as it was. Right? As it was previously. So this is another example of Lehi's maybe potential supposed heresy. The fact that he's traveling out into the wilderness and offering sacrifices. And then the next thing he does is, hey, we need these scriptures, right? They are rewriting all this stuff right now. They're uh, recompiling these things and, and taking out the stuff that, that we previously did and worshipped and, and, and all of our stuff. So we want to go back and get the ones that are not changed potentially right and and I am I am making a little bit of this up right to fit my my model <laughs> but but he sends well you're inventing the details yeah I'm inventing right? the details correct but it fits all within this within this uh, scenario so he sends his son back sons back to get these these scriptures right and the idea would be that these are written on brass plates they might predate all of these religious reforms and so they might still contain all of these older ideas um, that Lehi and his family might hold to. Yeah, that's an interesting hypothesis, Ben. Yeah. There's a lot that could be going on here that really, really places the beginning of the Book of Mormon within a very fascinating historical context. Um, 
in which the book of Deuteronomy might have been produced and uh, ties it to it in, in a way that I had never realized before in multiple ways. Again, with Asherah, with his visions, with the scriptures, with the sacrifices, um, all of that sort of stuff really, really points to that period of, of Jewish uh, Israelite history. Yeah, if, you, if this speaks to you, speak to us. You know, reach out. So you can you can reach out to Ben or me. You can comment on YouTube. You can comment on Facebook. You can, uh, unfortunately, with when it comes to episode by episode discussion, it has to be one of those two venues. If you have comments about the podcast in general, you can do that. You know, via your favorite podcast app. But yeah, get get. Let us know what you think. Earlier, Christopher, you said something about how Moses throughout this book of Deuteronomy is constantly referencing back to Egypt and Exodus um, and them coming out of slavery and everything like that. And and it made me think of Alma chapter 5. Because in Alma chapter 5, Alma is speaking to um, the people and talking to them about what he calls the captivity of their fathers. In the narrative of the Book of Mormon, the people had been in captivity to the Lamanites at a certain point, Alma and his people. And they are delivered by the Lord through miracles and and come out. And so this is another another exodus that happens in the in the Book of Mormon. Um, and travel through the wilderness and they arrive. And then and then Alma's son Alma is going out and preaching. And one of the things that he does is tell the people, remember the captivity of your fathers. And it's part of his repentance Thing. And, and he says, if, if you, he says something uh, to them to make them think about how they, how they felt back then. If you have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? And this really evokes, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the same types of um, ideas that Moses is getting at here in Deuteronomy. It's that you remember. Yeah, what, all the way down to the song. Yeah. Yeah, right at, right. The end, at the end of Exodus, mm-hmm. and also right before the strange fire that we talked about yes. last time, right? This yes. joyous song that with, that with the divine presence. Remember all the things God has done for you, and and don't don't lose that, right? Don't lose what you felt and what you knew in in those moments of those those miracles that were done for you by God. And yet He still, you know, and tell your children, yeah, and tell your children. Raise your children that way. So yeah, it just reminded me of that that uh, discourse by Alma in, in Alma chapter five. Yeah, it's a good parallel to point out. And these are you know these are these are significant parallels because they're they're thematic. Yes. Right. The 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 theme that God hears the call of the oppressed, and that He delivers His people, is the central theme of the Bible. And maybe also Probably the central scripture. Of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's actually central in the Quran just as well. And in the New Testament, it really is the central theme of the of, of at least the three monotheistic uh religions, you know, traditions, yeah. sacred texts. Yeah. So I want to move into uh, commenting on some specific parts as you know, as long as we have time um as we're recording to some specific parts throughout uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And we mentioned how this is named Devarim because this is the words of Moses. And 
uh, that's what it says here in chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan. Yeah, this is typically how the chapters or how the books that it, uh, rather are named yes. in the Jewish tradition, right? According to that, not the first word, because it wouldn't be these, right? But the words. First the, the significant, significant word, word, you know, that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is deeply significant. Do you remember the, you and I both read something from Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, mm, who's yes. a British MP on this. And he had some some interesting things to say about uh, about what these words mean. Because one, one of them, I'll just bring out one point, and listeners can, you know, you can listen, you can read this article yourself. If you look for it, you'll find it. Devarim, Jonathan Sachs, that'll get you there. You know, one is that, so there are different ways of organizing or of political communities coming about. One is by conquering Right. Another is by is by words. And so this is this is part of what's going on here is a religious community and a political community, a political, I should say, a political community that that doesn't distinguish between religion and politics. Right. right? right. So this political, this polis, this this political community is coming together and it's spoken into being in these words. And this, so this is just like uh, it's a covenant relationship uh-huh. just like in in the american tradition right and the in the constitutional uh vein it's the same idea yeah i think he references the declaration of independence in there yeah yeah and the, and, the, and the u.s constitution there's a one other way uh form of uh you know putting together a polity that he mentions but importantly the one that's by words right this is one one point that he brings out that i thought was uh worth mentioning yeah absolutely um, so I'm going to go to verse 13 in, in chapter one. And, and it says this, it says, choose for each of your tribes, individuals who are wise, discerning, and reputable to be your leaders. You answered me, the plan you have proposed is a good one. So I took the leaders of your tribes, wise and reputable individuals, and installed them as leaders over you. Okay, so something interesting here is that <clears throat> what the the command is to find people who are three things: they are wise, discerning, and in the, the KJV it says understanding instead of discerning. Um, I think Zornberg says you know intuitive. Um, is is one way to look at this as well. So wise discerning. She would put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> she's a very intuitive person. Wise discerning like and reputable. Okay, and then um, they said this is a good plan. And Moses says, "So I took the leaders of your tribes, wise and reputable." Well, there's something missing in what Moses did. Missing is that understanding, that intuitiveness, that discerning. And what Moses seems to be saying here is, you guys, I could find wise and reputable people, but I couldn't find people who were understanding or discerning or intuitive. And that's, this is one of those things that Moses is saying without saying. He's saying, you aren't intuiting enough. You aren't, you aren't reading between the lines enough of what I'm saying. I need you to, to get it without me saying it. You need to intuit things, and then you will be more on on track with stuff. And uh, it, it's it's a little bit of a 
you know, calling out and a little bit of an insult maybe <laughs> to say I, I I could only find people that were wise and reputable, not not intuitive or discerning. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you read it that way, Ben, because it could be read as Moses leaves this out, right? He forgets this one one out of three things. That's another way. Oh, to yeah, read that it. is another way to look at it. That's true. It's interesting to note too that what we're seeing here is again, as as much of the book of Deuteronomy is is this retelling of what happened in Exodus, right? This is when Jethro says, look, you can't talk to all the people yourself. You have to get help. And so you have to appoint people. And and this is this is what I see here. Yeah, absolutely. This is in in the text, it's it talks about it as if these are two different events. One where Jethro comes and says, hey, appoint all these people. And then another time when the Lord says, hey, appoint all these people. And it's like, wait, we already did that. Why are we doing it again? And this just kind of brings out that documentary hypothesis, right? Where this is something that happened, but there's two different accounts of it. Um, and they they differ uh, in, in terms of when they happen and how they came about. They fit them together in the narrative. One says Jethro does it. The other says the Lord commands him to do it. So, so I want to go to something in chapter two. Um, it's not necessarily a specific verse, but it's in the it's verses kind of twenty to to twenty five or so, and this is talking about. Can I Ben before you before you go into chapter two? There's something I wanted to point out in chapter one too, that um, I almost forgot about. I thought it was interesting to note in in uh, chapter one verse thirty nine, when we're dealing with knowing right from wrong, that the age of accountable discretion. And this is, you know, you can check this against Isaiah 7.15, is 20 years. Because I thought it was interesting, it went, went, and this I got from commentary, right? As I'm reading, it looks like, I'm thinking, who, how old are these people that, that Moses is talking to? I thought they were 20-something. And, and then I read that they're of this, you know, that they, they haven't reached this age of accountability, and so I thought, what, they're not eight yet? <laughs> and it turns out that the age of accountability is is not eight. It's 20 years. Yeah. Adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. So that's different from, from our tradition and even the Muslim tradition where, where it's around seven. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's different ages for different types of accountability and responsibility, right? You know, in our, in our religious tradition, we say eight for baptism, but then you know, then it's 12 for certain things and then 16 for certain things, right? You're not supposed to date before you're 16. And then it's 18 for other things. And and, and then in our, in our uh, like politically or even legalistically, you know, 18, I mean, 16 is driving. 18 is considered an adult, but not fully an adult, right? Because you still can't drink alcohol and that waits till 21, right? Yeah. So we have all these sort of stages um, and, and yeah, but, but there seem to be little or no limitations after 21, right? So that, that is, you know, that's pretty close. They're saying 20. So, so when we get to chapter two, uh, Moses is starting to recount some of the conquests that have already happened in the land. And there's a lot of really specifics, like he references people and places and stuff like that. And there was some, um, some commentary in my my Oxford Bible here, that uh, made me remember something that had come up when I was studying some historical accounts, some ancient historical accounts, and um, that was that 
this is around the time of what's considered the end of the Bronze Age, 1300-ish BC, right? And the marker for the end of the Bronze Age is typically put around this date because of a series of events. And these events have to do with what are called the Sea Peoples invading various regions, particularly coastal regions. They in very in a lot of ancient accounts they're called the Sea Peoples. They come in and they they invade these parts. They are responsible for the destruction of multiple ancient uh, civilizations and a a type of collapse that happens. And so, actually, archaeologically, you see a uh, a drop in certain technological advances and. Um, and civilizations at this time because of these invading sea peoples. Um, and what what is likely going on historically at this time is that a lot of what happened here in this land of Palestine is that you had in these invading sea peoples that destroyed a lot of the, the people and civilizations that existed in that area. And so the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, as they're they're moving in, they're actually coming into a land that is much less populated than it was just, you know, a hundred years before. So you get all these stories about the conquering of these peoples by the Israelites. But historically, um, what is very likely could have been happening is that they are actually entering lands that have already been conquered by these, these sea peoples and taken over. And the Israelites are either just coming in and uh, assimilating the population that's there, or sometimes they would take them as as uh, slave labor for a time, things like that. But then later in the accounts, this gets um, this gets told as a conquest rather than really more of a a migration, right? Well, that becomes the the founding myth of this people. And, and it becomes important for them to distinguish themselves from the Canaanites, whereas I, as I've pointed out already, they are they look a lot alike in their in their actual religious practices. And in fact, it isn't until these reformers that they become different. And so, you know, from a you know from depending on your point of view, right? From from this Latter Day Saint perspective, it looks like we're not going to go with these reforms. We're going to go off to the Americas according to the Book of Mormon story, right? And bring this older religion with us, including perhaps, right, the, the, the mother goddess. It's interesting because we, we still see this, there's an impulse going at least as far back as, as you know, the Deuteronomist, right? To sweep the divine feminine under the rug, to let's not talk about that. Yeah, so let's keep you know the divine feminine at arm's length, even in our tradition, you know, where where a divine feminine is acknowledged, that's about as far as it goes. Yeah, right. That we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, and so here we are talking about it. Uh, on that note, I mean, I don't know how far you want to skip here, but the next thing I have to talk about is in chapter seven. So I know that's a bit of a jump. Yeah, but- actually. There's something here in chapter four I want to point out because it, and it's just because it relates to something you said. In verse five of chapter four, we see, we read, see just as the Lord my God has charged me, 
I now teach you statuses and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you're about to enter and occupy. This is the whole project of the Deuteronomist, right? Uh, you must observe them diligently, for this will show you your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great yeah. nation is a wise and discerning people. Yeah. There's that discerning that, that is coming back yeah. that Moses <laughs> left out. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the concern, right? The main concern of Deuteronomy is this transition from generation to generation of this normative experience and this polity that's Israel, right? That's the Deuteronomist uh, concern. And that's really what Deuteronomy is all about. Okay, so in, in chapter 5, it's interesting to note that the Deuteronomists are even going to give us some some minor and even some substantive differences in their Decalogue, right? We're going to get a Decalogue that does not look exactly like the one in Exodus. And so I, I'll leave it at that for the reader to compare without going into details. Notice that there are differences. Some of them are substantive. And then, you know, we have this idea of the covenant relationship, right? That's another main theme that comes out. If you look at 510, you know, chapter 5, verse 10, you have this this idea of steadfast love, what is in Hebrew, chesed, that's this, this love that's modeled by God. It's like loyalty in this case, to, right? It's kind of like a... Yeah, that's, that's appropriate to this covenantal relationship. You know, going back to Rob Bell, God wants to marry us, right? This is the, this is the sacred marriage, the hieragami, between heaven and earth, between God and his people. It really is a marriage covenant is what we're looking at here. And then in chapter 6, I wanted to point out the what's from verse 4, right? You have what's called, or at least this is the beginning of the prayer that's called the Shema, that says, oh, yes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, which is one translation. It can be translated... Also, um, the Lord our God is one Lord, or the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's just not. I would so it's Shema Yisrael Elohim Eloheina Elohim Achad, and you know I'm an Arabic speaker. I'm not really a, a, a Hebrew speaker, so I may sound like a, a Sephardic Jew or something, like a Yemeni Jew, I, I should say. Hmm. Um, so. Shema Israel, hero Israel, Elohim, Elohim Eloheina. The gods are our God, is what it's saying literally, right? This is plural. The gods are our God. Elohim Ahed. The gods are one. So that's another translation. That's my own translation. Yeah. Huh. That that's interesting in the context we've been discussing, though, right? <laughs> yes, indeed, right? That's the point, right? There's there's this whole pantheon of gods that's one. And that's this is what one. Joseph Smith yeah. gave us, right? Yeah does relate to Joseph is that Smith's there, theology. That there is a pantheon, but but it's but the gods are one. And so that's 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 a possible translation of the of the Shema that I'm giving of my own. Yeah. Kind of a heretical one, right? That's the idea. <laughs> of course. So you wanted to bring up something in chapter seven, right? Yeah, well chapter seven is the the great reference to the Asharim, right? So right. Yeah. There's something yeah, that I left out earlier when I talked about Asherah, I didn't give sort of the lowercase Asherah, right? So I mentioned the poles. I mentioned the what the 
the the Israelite figurines look like from the waist down as opposed to the Canaanite ones where, where there's just this this trunk right where it's this tree and so I didn't mention the poles and so there's this sort of this lowercase asherah which are these asherim which is plural for asherah that are these cultic poles or trees that are associated at least indirectly with the goddess asherah I mean they really just do stand in, in as a symbol of the goddess and again, they're part of the architecture of, of the Solomonic Temple. And they're present, you know, and, and they're taken away and they come back, you know, whereas the brazen serpent doesn't come back. And you have Baal is taken out and Asher is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, these are symbols of trees, which are then symbols of the divine feminine. Right? They're symbols of symbols, right? They're called poles in the... NRSV translation. What are they called in the KJV? You know what? Let me look that up here real quick. Hold on. So Ben, you you you're talking about your your Oxford Bible. So for for those of you who are just joining us, you know, maybe for the first time, we did cover translations in our introduction to the Bible, this three hour podcast that deals with a lot of material about the Bible. Ben and I are both reading, typically we're studying from study Bibles that are NRSV translations. Ben is studying from the Oxford study Bible. I'm studying from the HarperCollins study Bible. There's also the New Interpreter study Bible. And so you can get the NRSV translation in any one of these three study Bibles, and you'll have some commentary, and there may be some overlap, and there may be some differences. Ben and I are reading two different study Bibles for the potential differences in commentary. The KJV translation of this verse, chapter 7, verse 5, is actually significantly different, but then the footnotes help us get back on track a little bit. Yeah, just not quite, right? Not but quite, yeah. So here's the KJV. That. But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves, right? So groves, a grove of trees. It's so groves. we do have. Yeah. We do have some reference to trees there. And then it says, though, and burn their graven images with fire. Well, um, they weren't they weren't really graven images in this case. If we go down to the to the footnotes here, they're talking about it again. the The footnote here says Asherim. The Hebrew is Asherim, and then it says, "i.e., fertility deities." And right. it, it's like yes, fertility was part of it, but this is this has more to do. You know, th- there's more to it than being a fertility deity, right? This isn't right. Yeah, so so we're talking about Asherim. Anytime you read, and this is in chapters, we're here in 7, it shows up again in 12, and again in 16. When you read about these groves, uh, when you read in the NRSV about poles, you're talking about these trees that are symbols of Asherah. You know, in, cha- in, in chapter 7 also, you know, verses 7 through 16, it's interesting to note that the God's devotion to Israel, it has it doesn't really have anything to do with any intrinsic value in the nation. You know, it's in the people themselves, it's really just it's about God. It's not about them. It's about who He is. Yeah, He chose them. Does that make sense? They just didn't like choose him. Yeah, just like exactly. Just like uh being uh just about just like how Christian love isn't about the one who is loved, but about the one who calls himself a Christian, right? The, the Christian is the one who loves you because she's a Christian, 
not because of who you are. It's not about, this isn't like a romantic love that has to be earned. No, you get it because she's a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. And God does the same thing. Yeah. The idea um, here is that God is bringing them into the land because they're the people he has chosen, not because of something they've done, right? In fact, it's in spite of what they've done because they rebelled against him and complained against him and all these sort of things. Yeah. You know, Ben, back, I don't know if you have anything from chapter eight. I remember back when we talked about Leviticus, where you think, what has this got to do with me? Leviticus, really? And, and hopefully we did a good job of answering that question. If you haven't heard, go back and listen. But one of the things I remember pointing out about Leviticus is that this idea of loving your neighbor that we associate with Jesus of Nazareth comes from Leviticus. Yes. And so here in chapter eight, there's another reference in verse three. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yeah. That's right there in, in uh, Deuteronomy. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times these things we, we associate with Jesus are him quoting the Hebrew Bible. Most of the time. <laughs> Well, yeah, right, exactly. And and especially, you know, with Matthew, with the evangelists, they Matthew especially. Yeah, Matthew especially, that's true. His Hebrew Bible. Yeah. yeah. And so then you get this warning, right, at the end of the chapter. This is another thematic element. So there's just certain things that just get repeated a lot, right? If, if you do forget the Lord your God, this is verse 19, and follow other gods to serve and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall be, that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord is destroying before you, so you shall per- so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. So there are all these threats. I mean, there's there's a I don't remember the chapter, but there's an entire chapter of if you don't do the things, this is what's going to happen to you, right? And so that's it's remember what God has done for you, keep His commandments, or you're you know if you do you'll prosper, if you don't you'll be destroyed. And we get this over and over and over in this book. The next thing I have to bring up is in chapter 12. So did you have anything before then? Yeah. So I thought, again, some I just noticed something different from the story that we got in Exodus where the golden calf is ground up and, you know, pulverized and then mm-hmm. d- dissolved in water Drinking and to, cold be, water. You know, to be drunk. <laughs> Yeah, to be drunk. And here you actually get in chapter 8, chapter 9, you get in chapter 9, verse 21, that it's actually that it's actually put into it. The dust goes into a stream that runs down the mountain. It's a completely different story. Oh, interesting. Once again, in chapter 10, you know, verse 12, you get, So now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In verse 14, although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. And then you get these, you know, in verse 19, you get, you shall also love the stranger for you were strangers. This is again, another theme that's repeated a lot. Remember that you were strangers too. You were slaves in Egypt. So remember the the stranger. You shall fear the Lord your God, him alone you shall worship, to him you shall hold fast. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great, and this is a, 
this is an exhortation, right? This is a homily that, that Moses is giving. And um, who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the heaven. Another theme that gets repeated a lot in this book, right? That that, that promise made to Abraham that his descendants would be as the the sands of the uh, of the sea, right? Have been has been fulfilled. And then we get, you know, in in verse sixteen, this idea of circumcising the foreskin of the heart. So we talk about we talked about Moses being uncircumcised of lips. Here we have the circumcision of the foreskin of the heart, which is this call to conversion, right? That that kind of shows that that the human mind, right? What we call today the mind, which is called then the heart is this barrier to knowing and to doing what the Lord requires, right? That we have this recalcitrance, that we have this hesitation, that our hearts are uncircumcised. That's what it means to be uncircumcised of heart, is to be in some sense recalcitrant. Okay, 12. <laughs> in 12, you get again, of, in chapter 12, as, as previously mentioned, you get again burning the sacred poles with fire, right? uh-huh. those poles being those asherim. Yeah, so 12 is um, sort of a doubling down on this theme of getting rid of some of these these old uh, religious practice ways and centralization of the temple worship. And so in 12, we get the, the restriction of the sacrificial worship of God into a single sanctuary. And then you remove any of the foreign influence. Um, and part the so this is done in two particular ways. So uh, some of the commentary here, I'm going to read about this. It says that there are two revolutionary distinctions. First, between sacrificial worship at random sites, any place rejected as illegitimate and legitimate sacrifice performed at a single sanctuary, the place that the Lord will choose. This contrasts with previous norms when altars were common throughout the land. And you can see that in multiple references. Second, between ritual sacrifice and secular slaughter of domestic animals for food. According to the biblical account, prior to Deuteronomy, all slaughter, even for food, was sacrificial and took place at an altar. With altars throughout the land, that rule imposed no burden upon Israelites. The prohibition of all local altars, however, created a real difficulty for those without easy access to the central sanctuary. The permission granted here for local secular slaughter answers that need. Okay. So you're bringing all of the religious practice centralized into the temple that that centralizes that authority politically and religiously, right? And then you're saying, okay, well, you can still do sacrifices, but they're not religious anymore. And, and this goes back to the earlier points we were making uh, about the context of Deuteronomy and what was going on um, politically, religiously at this time, why this text was crafted in this way um, to have Moses giving these assertions um, or, or imperatives when he said things that were the opposite of this and they were obviously practiced differently previous to the book of Deuteronomy or, or what we have written in the book of Deuteronomy. So there's something I wanted to bring out here, Ben in verse eight, 
we read, You shall not act as we are acting here today, all of us according to our own desires. You know, this this is a theme that is prominent in the Quran, this idea of uh, what's called an Arabic hawa, that you are uh, acting according to your own desires, your own whims, your own fancies, right? Okay. This is something that is, you know, that is warned against, is acting according, you know, do everyone doing what seemeth him right, right? Yeah. Do it this rather specific than following, way. It's very prescribed. Rather yeah. than following the, the the way, right? Whatever the way is that is given, the, that people have a tendency to want to act out of their own desires. And that's something that, that at least in the centralization, in this sort of what I call the totalitarian impulse, right, is going to be proscribed, right? We want, and of course, religion, the point of religion really is to, to bind the people in some sense, to hold them together, both as individuals and as a community. And so, of course, there, there are bounds for that, right? There are binds. If, if you're going to be bound, there are binds. Uh, and there are, it reminds me of a, a book from the Arbinger Institute. I think that one, this one is actually under C. Terry Warner's name, Bonds That Make Us Free. Make right? us there free. are bonds yeah. that make us free. Yeah, that's sort of the, and I, I'll mention this because I know I've talked to people who don't realize this, that that there are three books and they're really the same book written for different audiences. You have leadership and self-deception, getting out of the box. That's the business version. You have the anatomy of peace. That's the international relations version. And you have bonds that make us free. And that's the family and marriage version of the same book from the Arbinger Institute, from C. Terry Warner and et al., right? And others. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's there's always going to be this tension, right? Between that, it, it's the order and chaos thing, right? That there's going to be right. a, a pull in the direction of, of organization. Um, and then there's always the pull in the direction of of decentral, you know, centralization and decentralization, or or chaos and order, or yes. you know, these are and we things. have to walk the line, and we have to walk the line. We, right? we have to walk the line. Can I can I just share a, a personal story, Ben? You know, because I think it really illustrates the point. You know, when I raced sailboats, I did spinnaker trim. For you know, if you don't know what a spinnaker is, it's this huge balloon-like sail that's typically colorful. That you see, have you seen this, Ben? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. So it's this huge balloon-like sail that that that's a foresail, right? That you actually take down the oh, jib, yes, which yes, is the yes. usual foresail. Oh yes, yes, yes. I do know what you're talking about now. Yes. And you put up, and this is used like on kite. downwind legs, almost. It, it, you know what? I love that you said that because it the the experience of doing spinnaker trim, of trimming that sail, of handling those lines, which is what I did. And this is a three man, um, basically a th- a three man canoe with sails, an Olympic sailing boat, right? And my job was to, it really is like flying a kite. You have to give it line and give it line and give it line so that that sail can fill up. But as it starts to fill up, it comes to a point where the, the edge starts to curl. And that tells you the whole thing is about to collapse. It is on the verge of collapse. And if that collapses and gets wet, that's it. You're not going to win the race. But if you don't have it at to the point of collapse, you won't win the race, right? To, you, to yeah. get the performance, you have to push the envelope. You have to walk the line. So my job was to let it, to give it line 
until it's about to collapse, then to rein it in. But then as soon as you get control of it, you have to start letting go again. Yeah. It's a dance. And yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Definitely and I think a it's a really good analogy. Yeah. It's it's the principle with yin and yang as well. So yes, the idea is that you, there's there's some sort of some sort of order and structure you create, but even within that, you have to allow for there to be, um, you know, ambiguity, randomness, chaos, call it whatever you may. But then, you know, within, yeah. Anyway, I think that's been talked about. And it has about to be it. incorporated. <laughs> it has to be integrated, right? In the same way that, that, as Jung pointed out, our shadow self has to be integrated. We can't deny a part of ourselves. Yeah. Right? You cannot just put it out of you, right? You have to actually integrate it in a healthy way. And so it's the same idea. And so when I say the totalitarian impulse, I mean the one that doesn't allow for that ambiguity. Yeah. The one that only wants to reign Too in. many confines, too yeah. small a box. And so that's what we would say is going on here is that the box is getting yeah, too small. Exactly. It's getting, I mean, the, this text, it looks, I, I think I said this to you, Ben, you know, and, and outside of this recording, right? It's just this OCD, you know, you have to do all these things and you have to do them in this particular way. And these are priests writing this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. These are, this is their, and, and it's very much this reform and this, we got to get it right. And God is going to be nitpicky about these details because we are, that's how yeah. we see God, because that's who we are. Well, when you have too much order, you have tyranny and the, the way to get away from tyranny is to go into the wilderness, right? Into the chaos. Right. But then you get out into the wilderness and it's too much chaos. There's no order, right? And that means there's no water or food. And so you're like, well, maybe the order was better. We should go back to the flesh pots of Egypt and we should, you know, get back to that. Maybe that order was better. And, and Moses says, no, it wasn't better. We're going to go into a new land where we'll have the right balance between order and chaos. And, and then they get there, right? And here we have a moment when they're starting to maybe order too much. And so that's why I kind of like the idea that, that this is where Lehi and his family enter the picture. Because they're like, hey, there's too much order here. Things are going to collapse. Babylon's going to come, right? And so we need to get out of here. So they, they go into the wilderness, right? Into a new land. And so it's, it's just that repeat of that, that archetype, that theme. It is. So... Yeah, I see it. I saw it in my own, I see it in my own family too, without thinking, without saying, I'm not talking about when I say feminine, I don't mean male and female. I'm not talking about gender. I'm talking archetypally. Yeah. The the feminine archetypally is the chaotic, right? And right. the masculine archetypally is the, the orderly. And when, when it comes to my own wife's personality, I remember when I went to study in, in Jordan, I, I left my wife and kids behind for those months that I was studying in Jordan. And because of the because of my wife's nature, not because she's a woman, but because of her particular nature, this randomness is more of her way of being, right? It's her it's her energy type, and so there was a sense in which she felt freer in the way that she could, you know, go about her you know the day to day um, whatever you know the the day to day life without mm -hmm. me there, mm -hmm. and and felt in a sense you know. Uh, sort of emancipated, right, from from the order that I was imposing in some sense. And then before long, guess what? She wanted me back. 
<laughs> it's too much. <laughs> we need you back, right? We need you, but we need some order to this. And so I, I tried to, you know, to, to strike a balance, you know, this balance that we're talking about so that, and I tried to show this sort of the bonds that make us free, the idea that, that if you have, that there's an order that you can create that's enough that makes sure that you actually have room, that you actually have space for for that randomness, for yourself, right? For your own expression, that even that could be in some sense planned, right? So that so that we because we want to make sure that even that occurs. It's it's a fascinating concept. I mean, it it seems to crop up all over the place. It, all the way down to like actual straight up particle physics. If you study particle physics, like uh, this this concept uh, presents itself in in all of it, it. It appears in all of the human interactions with reality in the world around us. This is a recurring theme, um, and you know some have posited that well, this is just the way that the human psyche interacts in a interacts with and observes reality and so that we can't help but view it in that way um, regardless of whether that is the true nature of reality that is the only way that humanity's consciousness can perceive it so yeah all of that you know as our our midrash on chapter 12 <laughs> chapter verse 12. 8 right verse 8 <laughs> right. and more and for more uh, on uh, in this vein see our sister podcast latter-day contemplation where we where we contemplate on these things cool so there's something here i wanted to go through in chapter 15 ben chapter 15 verse 7 if there is among you anyone in need a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the lord your god has given you do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor you should rather open your hand willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing, right? Because if you lend at that time, oh, you have to, to forgive give the debt. Yeah. yeah. Give liberally. I think I skipped something. I cried, um, your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth. I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. So we see this, you know, we see true religion here. And among... Uh, among you know, frankly, there's a lot we're skipping here, right? Yeah, we're skipping all over a lot of the harsh stuff. <laughs> indeed, indeed, yeah. Uh, we don't see God in it. We we can see God in this. Absolutely, right? there it is. We we see again, you know, that the concerns of these priestly reformers. We see politics, you know. We see, and here, yet here, we see true religion, pure and undefiled. That actually goes along with what I was going to talk about in chapter 22. Um, again, don't know if you are okay with skipping that far, but. Well, hang on. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's not do that quite yet because now remember we said that there is another reference, one more reference in Deuteronomy chapter 16 to the Asherim, right? The These lowercase uh, Asherahs. Yeah. 
And so you get here in verse uh, 21, chapter 16, verse 21, you shall not plant any tree as a sacred pole beside the altar that you make for the Lord your God, which is exactly what we had in the architecture of the Solomonic temple, which is exactly what we had was the presence of that pole, that sacred pole. Well, that's that even tree, the candelabra that, that is the candlestick or oh, are, are, are tree representation of trees. Yeah. The menorah. Uh-huh. The menorah also also a very good point, but we had in the temple and in the tabernacle this representation of this tree of the divine feminine, and here it is being put out. In chapter eighteen, verse twenty one and twenty two, there's something I wanted to bring up. Ben, you may say to yourself, we read in the NRSV translation, "How can we recognize a word that the Lord has not spoken?" If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but the thing does not take place or prove true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. So this is sort of a, it's a version of time vindicates the prophets, right? As, as Hugh Nibley puts it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is a, this is actually a current concern for many, you know, this is something, well, how do we know that this is, you know, the will of the Lord, especially as we look at us here, we're here looking back at, at people who understood God differently than we do. And, you know, we don't actually see God the same way that they did. And we have, we have the revelation, right. Of the cruciform God, right. Of this, this cruciform hermeneutic, this beatitudinal hermeneutic that we speak of and that we read through that lens, right. That's our hermeneutic is that beatitudinal hermeneutic. And so we can ask this question. We still have this question today. And it turns out that, Sometimes you have to wait to find out, right? We talked earlier, I mentioned earlier the, the, the issue of the blacks and the priesthood. It was said at the time and, and for a long time to be a matter of God's will that the blacks did not, uh, were not ordained to the priesthood. And it turns out it was racism all along, right? Mm-hmm. That this is something that, that uh, the church has, has admitted. And so whatever it is, you know, Time vindicates the prophets, whether the one way or the other, we're going to find out uh, the truth of the matter. And and yet, you know, how can I, there's a fine line we have to walk, right? Because we want to follow the prophets. We want to, but we have to use discernment, right? This is a big theme here and that Moses is bringing out, as you've pointed out, Ben, right? That we be people of discernment. And remembering, of course, in, in our tradition, that whatever it is that we have access to straight from God is not something that that overrides uh, for the church, right? For for the purposes of the institution, uh, what the way things are, right? But that we can we can know these things for ourselves. And interestingly, you know, I think it's it's interesting to note how the culture changes over time in that way, right? It's not that you're going to vaunt yourself or, you know, you're not going to um, put yourself above those who are uh, at the top of a hierarchy that never works in any organization, right? You're not going to, I mean, you just look, I mean, any organization, any institution, right? It has to set up these boundaries and to say who's in and who's out. And it's inevitable, right? It's it's interesting because you start off with the prophet Joseph Smith and it's come one, come all. All the ideas are welcome. Everyone can have revelation. 
And then it's, wait a minute, how do I, if ever, right? And this is the same problem with the Reformation, right? If, if we don't, if you don't need an intermediary between uh, you and God, then what do you need us for? Right? What do you need the church for? That was the problem of the Reformation. Well, that problem hasn't gone away. That problem has been with us since the Reformation. Yeah, I see that coming up a lot here in, in these chapters. There is a discussion here about how to discern who a prophet is. And some of this seems to be sort of encased around the idea that we get at the end of the of Deuteronomy that there was there arose no prophet like Moses again, right? And and this does seem to be a uh, a type of sort of encapsulating the religion and saying this is what it is. I mean, we have statements here in Deuteronomy, don't add to or take away from. We get this in in our society now, you know, like the Bible is what the Bible is. You don't add to or take away from it. Right. Um, and so- And yet we do. Yeah. And yet we do. We do. And exactly. We have to negotiate this. You hear you hear things from people like, you know, I, I don't believe in anything, you know, that's extra biblical. I've heard this before, you know, like, <laughs> and and sometimes if, if it's the right thing to say, I'll, I'll say something like, well, you know, that belief is extra biblical, right? Cause like <laughs> yeah. the Bible itself says that there's other stuff, right? So it, it doesn't ever, you know, posit itself as, as the only thing. So there's, you know, there's a lot of, of nuance to that. And this idea of identifying a prophet is not a settled question, right? You know, we, we've tried to settle it with certain things in, in our tradition and, and and stipulate that and and you know we, well, we probably have right? some very interesting things to say about it but you're realizing this is a question from Moses's time right how do you identify a true prophet and the the ways that are given here are very very ambiguous and uh, you know they're, and they're not definitive they're very subjective exactly indeed so ultimately you know we we have received some pretty wise counsel from. Uh, from President Nelson, uh, you know, so, some years ago, he said something to the effect of us needing to seek the Holy Ghost and guidance from God individually in our lives, and that if we don't do that, we won't we won't be able to have the direction from God that we need, regardless of what prophets say directly to us. We have to get that in our own lives. We have to seek that guidance and that counsel directly from God. Yeah. So now speaking of things that we, uh, that we don't, you know, we just don't think uh, about God this way, you know, in chapter 20, you have this, you know, the priests, um, you know, in verse two, before you engage in battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the troops and you shall say to them, hero Israel today, you're drawing near to do battle against your enemies. Do not. And this is not like Jesus, right? Love your enemies. <laughs> Do not lose heart or be afraid or panic or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you victory. And then we have offer them peace terms, and if they don't accept them, slaughter every man and take <laughs> the women to be your sex slaves. I mean, this is just like I remember seeing videos on 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 YouTube where people were going out with with these these I think it was it was these verses. And trying to make people believe that they were reading from the Quran or something, yeah. so that they could, 
you know, to the, look how horrible this book is. And then to be able to turn that around and then say, actually, this is from the Bible, right? And, and have them have these people who say that this is the, the, the word of God and it's inerrant and, you know, that, that now deal with that, right? I just read you this. You thought it was from the Quran. It's from your Bible. What are you going to do with that, right? Take that literally. Yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, if you read something in, in, like this in Quran, it has its own context and it has the verses before that no one reads and it has the verses after that no one reads. And they usually say something like, nevertheless, God is merciful and better to forgive, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's always, like there's always more context than we Yes. <laughs> if I were to go to chapter 22 now, I, I would reference back to what you were talking about with the the relationship with your neighbor. So uh, chapter 22 gets into this love thy neighbor concept, but it also starts sort of stipulating, um, uh, it, it brings up the debate over what the definition of my neighbor is. And, and these are some of the verses that were debated among the scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees at Jesus's time. And these are what evoke the question to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Right. And, and, and then comes the story of that we call the story of the good Samaritan, where he explains to them in that format, how, how, you know, what is really intended by our neighbor, what is really intended by love our neighbor. And yet these, these verses here, along with some others are what sort of give rise to this debate and trying to figure out and and nuance who it is that I'm supposed to love and who it is that I'm supposed to hate and who I'm really who am I really responsible for this helping this person or well if if there's this one little caveat then I don't have to help this person in this way right and there's this this whole discussion over this and Jesus comes in and says no you love your neighbor and your neighbor is anybody that's around you that's in need. That's it. And and by the way, to illustrate my point, let me go to your, your worst enemy, right? Mm-hmm. The If Jesus were talking to Americans today, uh, he wouldn't mention Samaritans. He'd probably mention Muslims, sadly. I, I think we can say that. Might be Russians. No. Might be Russians, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because again, we, we also tried going back to this theme that you were, that you brought out of how people read the Bible, right? You have a verse here in the same chapter. What is this? Chapter 22, right? Here in chapter 22 and verse five, we read, a woman shall not wear a man's apparel, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment for whoever does such things is abhorrent to the Lord, your God. And we want to take this and make something out of it that has nothing to do with its context. I mean, what is this? No, so so no boyfriend jeans, no boyfriend cross t-shirts, ladies. Cross dressing, yeah, right, yeah. And and it's just not. And by the way, when, there's cross dressing and then there's boyfriend jeans, right? So it's it's about neither, right? It's about neither one of these things. It in its context, it likely has something to do with the religious practices of the Canaanites that the Deuteronomists are going to proscribe for their people, for, for, for Israel. Yeah. It's kind of like before, you know, look around you and do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Exactly. Just like we saw earlier in, in, the, in the Torah. And, and, and actually, interestingly, remember in the context of today's 
this episode, right, is that maybe these guys are wrong. And and I'm I'm not actually saying anything about men wearing women's clothes or 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 um women wearing men's clothes in this context, right? But the point is that whatever these guys are saying, we actually see Lehi as a heretic for them. And for us, you know, someone who takes the what we're calling the the brass plates, you know, before these guys came along and He's takes that tradition and goes <laughs> yeah and, and goes right and goes it's away. And and then yeah. and then the restoration happens out of that, right? Out of that ferment. Yeah. So there's that, right? So then you also have this was a fun one I wanted to bring out, verse eight. You know, there's this question, what if the what if the neighbor's kids jump on my trampoline and they fall off and break their necks? Right? That the, there's liability that I have to think about, right? Have you ever had this question? This is a oh, real yeah. question. Oh yeah, it this, happens this all comes the time. up. If if you have a trampoline, right? Well here <laughs> I do have a when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. Otherwise, you might have blood guilt on your house if anyone should fall from it. So you have to have this little wall to keep people from falling off the roof when they're hanging on the hanging out on the roof, because that's a thing yeah. in that time and place. Uh, as it was for me when I was a boy in Venezuela riding my bike on the roof. And of course you have to have a flat roof for this to make sense. So it may not make any sense to to an American listener, right? Right. But um but that's how we rode our bikes on the roof and that's how we got to the mangoes. Right. And the mango other than just climbing the tree, right? But yeah, so you have to have this parapet so that somebody doesn't fall off, so that you don't incur liability. So these are in in some sense legalistic texts too, right? We're getting these what about this? There are even these hypotheticals, right? Uh, imagine this happens. Then what? Right? We get those kind of those kind of things in this text. So chapter twenty three has some fun stuff in it, right, Chris? Um. <laughs> That's right. I remember you sending me a message, Ben, that you know Deuteronomy. There's nothing new here. This is just like Exodus rehashed. And then you thought there was nothing going on until you got to chapter 23. And I thought, okay, mental note, I'm not there yet. I'm behind. I'm starting. I'll get there. And then I thought, what was Ben saying? Chapter 20 something or other. And then I got to chapter 23. No one, verse 1, whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. And you and I were both um, silly schoolboys about this. He, yeah. he, he. And my wife says, oh, so no eunuchs. And I said, oh. Oh. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah, it, there's there's several uh funny little things in this chapter. The one that that stood out to me as as kind of like, oh, you know, that's kind of exceptional is uh, verse 15 and 16. Slaves who have escaped to you from their owners shall not be given back to them. They shall reside with you in your midst. In any place they choose, in any one of your towns, wherever they please, you shall not oppress them. I wonder how many Northerners were quoting this in the yeah, uh, right? war between the, the, the North and the South in, in American history. Yeah, how does this work with fugitive slave laws? How does this work with our current immigration course, stance? Right? Right. And, and of course, the Southerners were quoting the Bible to justify slavery, right? Right. Yeah, and then you get verses like this. I, th I thought they were extraordinary. And so I thought I'd just uh, point that out. I thought that was was interesting. Yeah. We have temple prostitutes mentioned in verse 17 and 18. And that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah, some of the commentary I've seen on this 
wants to say that not prostitutes in the way that we think of prostitutes now, but that they were dedicated specifically to the temple, not for sexual purposes, but as as we would say, like the, the Levites, right, are dedicated to that. So I, I don't know one way or the other to, to say. That sounds apologetic, but then this is a controversial matter. Yeah, so not sure. So, yeah, I mean, th- th- there is a commentary here on this verse in my HarperCollins study Bible, right? The, the temple prostitute refers to a consecrated person, right? To consecrated per- associated in biblical usage mm-hmm. with Canaanite or otherwise pagan rites. So the question is, were that to me, the question remains open, even after reading that, that footnote, uh, are the Canaanite temple prostitutes prostitutes in the traditional sense? And they're not in the consecrated. And this would be like the difference I explained between the the Canaanite Asherah figurines and the Israelite Asherah figurines. The Canaanite one being sexualized and the the Israelite one being more of a nurturing mother than a than a, than the erotic image of the Canaanite figurine. Yeah, it, it it's unclear to me. I mean, you know, like in the Roman tradition, you have the Vestal Virgins as well. So, right. But but Ben, but the thing is, is that these things are related, right? There, there's there's a connection here, right? And there may be there may be a controversy here. There may be a an ambiguity, but the ambiguity is because there's a connection. And remember, we you and I we talked about and from Aviva Zornberg, right? The idea that that is through that there is an erotic connection, right? We have to expand our sense of what we mean by erotic between uh that we we make those connections as human beings not only with our genitals but with our mouths right mm-hmm. and that those are that those are erotic the ways that we connect with others are erotic that the very nature of language is erotic yeah yeah i, I thought that was one of the more profound points she's brought out about the whole thing it really has kind of let me see some connections that i hadn't seen before in chapter 31 we have a, a moment, and, and this isn't the only time this happens, but we have a moment where the the editors or redactors of this tip their hand a little bit because whereas this whole thing has been talked about in the third person, you know, it's ostensibly Moses that wrote this, right, as he's speaking, even though it's in, written in the third person. We have these moments where it's like, okay, Moses couldn't have or wouldn't have written or said this in this way because of of what's said. Um, you know, you talked last time about the the time where it says Moses was, you know, the most humble person in the whole earth, right? And it's not likely Moses would have, have written that. Yes, Ben, you know, that that's like me. My humility is one of my traits I'm most proud of. Right, exactly. In chapter 31, we have Moses basically narrating his own death, right? So, Obviously, something else is is going on here. Um, Moses arrives at the age of 120 years. Um, whether or not you know he literally lived that long isn't the point here. This is uh, symbolic of something. Um, we had the first 40 years of his life that were spent in Egypt. The second 40 years of his life that were spent uh, in the wilderness with his uh, father-in-law, right? And then the last 40 years of his life are, you know, at the beginning, 
deliver, you know, helping the Israelites get out of Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness. And then this is, so this is the third 40 years of his life. He's 120 years old. This is symbolic of the maximum age for a human. Uh, the idea is that a human wouldn't live beyond 120 years. I think this reference, this is referencing something in Genesis where God says that man wouldn't live beyond 120 years. I'd have to go back and look up the reference. Um, idea here being that Moses really has has lived the ideal lifespan. And there comes this He's sort of- He's lived a full life. Yeah, completely full life. And there comes this moment in chapter 32 where Moses is commanded to die. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's he's reached that 120 years. He has. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, and I hate to skip over this song. Is it? It's called the Song of Moses or something like that, right? Like this is this long uh, piece of poetry here in chapter 32. Um, that oh, it's too bad we just don't have really the time to get into that. But but this is uh, one of those genres here in the scriptures of poetry. Um, it does kind of repeat a lot of the the things again. Yeah. But as that happens, you know, after that happens, Moses is then commanded to die. And it's it's an un, unusual imperative, right? But it it establishes that Moses he everything he does up to dying is commanded by God. Right? He he follows everything God commands him to do even dying. Right. So, you know, there's a, a quote I wanted to share. It's in her book on Moses, right? Uh, on, on Moses, there's a book on Moses by Aviva Zornberg. She actually chose this quote as her epigraph, right? To set the tone for the whole book. She writes, in his diary, Kafka, this is the, the author of the, of the famous Metamorphosis, right? Writes about Moses. This is in his diary. He writes about Moses. He is. He has throughout his life the flair it takes to discover Canaan. That he should see the promised land only on the eve of his death is implausible. The last point of view can have only one meaning, that of showing life as an imperfect moment. And how imperfect, since a life of this nature could last indefinitely without ever resulting in anything but a moment. It was not because his life was too short that Moses did not enter Canaan. It was because it was a human life. Oh, yeah. Oh, we could talk about that for an hour and a half. We can't do that, Ben. <laughs> not tonight. There's something else I wanted to go back to here in verse uh, chapter 31, verse 16. There's another occurrence of the word prostitute, which has really nothing to do with what we might think of, right, when we read prostitute. When the people, then this, the people will begin to prostitute themselves to the foreign gods in their midst. That one's actually probably evident, right? From the, you know, to prostitute yourself to the gods. I don't think anyone t would take that literally. This is really about um, going astray in worshiping foreign gods, right? Yeah, this is a religious adultery, right? Because you're... Yes, exactly. I like that the, the way you put it, religious adultery. Being unfaithful to the God who wants to marry the Theological us. adultery, maybe, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. When I get to the last chapter of Deuteronomy 34, this actually talks about 
uh, the end of Moses's life and and his death. And uh, yeah, you know, in is it, it in Rob Bell's book? I think it's what is the Bible. This is like the opening thing. He talks about this verse and and Moses and what it says about Moses. Um, Which it, verse is it? So this would be verse seven. Can we start at verse one? Sure. Because in verse one, right, we have then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo. Now I don't know where the plains of Moab are. Are maybe I've been there, maybe I haven't. But I have stood atop Mount Nebo. Yeah, I have too. To the top of Pisgah, yeah, which is opposite Jericho, and the Lord showed him the whole land, and you really can see. You can see from the top of Mount Nebo. You can actually see the Dome of the Rock, the place where on on the Temple Mount, where there's a, a monument that's that marks the spot where Muhammad rose, uh, to you know the and his night journey from, that he takes a, a winged. Uh, steed from Mecca to Jerusalem and then goes up and rises, you know, to the top of the, the heavens, all through the levels of heavens. And, and fun story, right? To, to go into a little bit of the detail, he's told that the Muslims should pray many more times than five a day. And Moses tells him, wait, God told you what? No, you got to go back up there and talk to him. They're not going to do it. The, I know these people, they wandered you know, 40 years in the desert, they wouldn't listen. You got to tell God, you got to talk him you down. You can change God's on these mind. Prayers. I've done it. <laughs> yeah. And he sends, and he sends him back. Up. Yeah. Right. He sends him back up multiple times. And at one point, you know, when it, when it gets down to five, Moses is still saying, no, it's too many. And Muhammad says, look, you go talk to him. I'm not going back up again. And that's the story. <laughs> so you're standing on Mount Nebo and you can see the whole land in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and I both had that experience. Yeah. And it's not even that, you know, we call it a mount. It's not even that high of a mountain. It's just where it's positioned that it, that it really gives you a good perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I can think of uh, a better, a higher place that you can actually look out over the same land, which is from the top of, um, you know, where the monastery is in, in, uh, Petra. Oh, yes. The top of that mountain. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea here in chapter 34, verse 7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. So in the KJV, uh, instead of vigor, it says his natural force. I think Rob Bell read yeah, a different translation. this is manliness we're talking about. Yep. Yeah. So this is her fertility, his fertility. And it's virility. Virility. Yeah, that as well. <laughs> virility. Yeah. Virility. So the the idea here is that uh, you know Moses's this promise that they would have posterity, right, and uh, multiply. This uh, ability is still quote unquote al- you know alive and well within Moses when he dies, and this is saying that you know God's promise had had still persisted within the person of Moses up until his death. That's right. Well, there you have it, folks. The book of Deuteronomy, Devarim, in under two hours. <laughs> and and by the way, that means, what is it, eight hours of editing? Thank you to, to our editors for the work that they do. Uh, yeah. And for you and me, Ben, what is it, something like 30, 40 hours of preparation between the two of us? It just spent. It's just a lot to digest on these yeah. these texts, right? And um, it, 
it's not without its rewards, right? There's just a really, really fascinating stuff in this. Um, and I'm, yeah. I'm so glad, but it, it just is very time consuming. There's just a lot of material and you don't find the, the gems without, you know, sifting through all the rock. And that's uh, right. So it just takes time. In our tradition, uh, we have BH Roberts. I realized I found out later on, I, I attributed this quote to BH Roberts. He was really quoting Lord Byron hmm. and it's become our family motto here at the Hurtado home which is the heart is the good and truth is a gem that loves the deep go and search for it there you go for latter-day peace studies i'm ben peterson and i'm christopher hurtado thank you for listening